title of the sermon is Innocent Blood. We're going to learn about the shedding of innocent blood this evening from a passage of Scripture that is in many ways tragic. Very dynamic. Many things going on. There is a major problem in our country today, a mindset issue, and that of the shedding of innocent blood and the lack of justice. Uh, We'll talk about various aspects of that in our application today. And yet, as we step into our text this evening, we're going to um, find a very potent example that David is going to have to deal with among his captain Joab and the captain of Ishbosheth's host, Abner. As we step into the text this evening, we begin in verse 1. I'm just going to jump right in. The text says, Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. You recall the skirmish which we were introduced unto last week? This skirmish which was initiated uh, by Abner, suggesting that a few men start a little bit of a war game. So 12 men of Benjamin and 12 men of Judah, of of, uh, David's men, came and fought. They all killed each other. And it initiated a very sore battle. And that battle went bad for Abner, right? And Abner and his men had to flee. Eventually, uh, it was found that 360 of Abner's men were killed, whereas only 20 of David's men were killed. However, one of those 20 men was a man named Azahel. And Azahel was the youngest brother of Joab, one of the sons of Zeruiah, David's sister. Azahel was killed by the captain of, Saul, of Ishbosheth's host, and Saul's host before, named Abner. And Abner was running, remember? And he looks back, and there's Azahel, and Azahel wants the glory of killing Abner, and Abner warns him, don't do this, don't make me kill you. What, can I, what, what will I say to your brother? Azahel does not turn. Abner kills Azahel in battle. It was, a, it was, it was a, a just death in war. Abner flees. They end up disbanding. The, 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 it does not turn into what it could have been. Joab ends up going home with his men. No one else dies. 360 men of Ishbosheth die. Uh, only 20 of David die. Now this initiates a long war, the scriptures tell us, between David and Ishbosheth. He's called here the house of Saul. Ishbosheth is not a strong king. He doesn't really get his own. It's not really the house of Ishbosheth. It's the house of Saul. He's, Ishbosheth is never well recognized in the scripture. Throughout this time, David is getting stronger and stronger, however, and Ishbosheth is getting weaker. And this is only the beginning of indications that David was, was being fruitful. He was being blessed of the Lord. We also see this in David's personal life, that he was being blessed of the Lord. We, we read in verses 2 through 5, And unto David were sons born in Hebron. And his firstborn was Ahinoam, the, uh, was of Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. I'm, I'm missing something there. Hang on. Let me, like, let me look in, in the actual text here. Uh, it was... Amnon, yes. Um, 
The firstborn, uh, I'm sorry, you missed a word there. The firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite, and third, the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, the sixth, Itriam, by Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. There are three men on this list that we um, see again in Scripture that will become more familiar to us. We'll see Amnon, who you don't see up there, but he, he's supposed to be there. Uh, that's the second week in a row I've had a, a major error on my slides. Uh, Amnon, and I just copy and paste the text, so you know, that's saying something. Um, Amnon, who will we'll, we'll come across again as the next one, actually. Was, this was David's firstborn of Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. Absalom, David's thirdborn, he'll come up again in 2 Samuel. And then in 1 Kings, if we were to go all the way to 1 Kings, which, which we won't be doing anytime soon, uh, we would also read about Adonijah. Adonijah, David's fourthborn, he would come into play as well. So three of these men will come into play again, all three of them having been born while David was in Hebron. Now, of course, we know that he had many more children when he gets into Jerusalem, when he becomes king over Israel. But during that seven and a half years he ruled in Hebron, uh, those three will become the most um, important. But he has six children, as we see the record here in the span of those seven and a half years that he's in he Hebron. Also notice with me in passing However, his very unsettling trend that David is multiplying unto himself wives. And this unsettling trend will indeed be damaging to David, but it will be significantly more damaging in the example that he sets for his son Solomon. Solomon will multiply wives in a way that David never even contemplated, and the scriptures tell us quite clearly that Solomon's wives turn away his heart from following the Lord. And so David is beginning to set a very unhealthy precedent here of taking to himself many wives and it's going to cause problems down the road. We do well to heed that warning. Parents, the sins that you commit in moderation might just become your children's sins in excess. When your children see sin in your life, they can go one of two ways. It's the same as the, the, the church and pastor's life. It can either be, my authority is doing that, I don't want to go that way. Or it can be, my authority is doing that and they turned out okay, so must be alright. Even though it's supposed to be wrong. It's been said oftentimes that the sins that we commit in moderation, our children could very well commit in excess. And indeed in David's life, this sin which he committed in relative moderation before his family would lead to Solomon committing it in, in gross excess. And where it did not turn David's heart away from the Lord, it will turn his son's heart away from the Lord. In contrast to David's fruitfulness, that was just, that was for free, that was in passing. In contrast to David's fruitfulness, Ishbosheth's life is heading in the opposite direction. Look at verses 6 and 7. And it came to pass, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine, whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said unto Abner, Wherefore hast thou gone in unto my father's concubine? Now, the conflict we read here is very cultural in character. When a king died, 
his harem, his wives, his concubines and such, his harem was the exclusive inheritance of his successor. To take one of these wives into, to yourself would be to assert some claim of authority. And if a man was to take the concubine or the wife of a former king who was not the next king, this would be extremely offensive and a very hostile action toward him. That being said, it's likely that Ishbosheth had little to no dealings with his father's concubines. Most likely they were just um, kind of set on their own to live an effective widowhood as many of the concubines and wives of kings did. They were kind of set off as, as the mothers of the king or the mother of the king and the concubines, effectively living in widowhood, not allowed to marry again, but being taken care of by the king until the day of their death. Ishbosheth, however, confronts Abner about a perceived impropriety. And I say perceived because the text does not make it abundantly clear whether or not the charges against Abner was well-founded. I, I went and looked into this a little bit, and I found some people that took it for granted that, yes, Abner had gone into Saul's concubine, and others that said, well, we really don't have any proof in, in the text or otherwise that, that this claim is validated. And in fact, Abner uh, rather contradicts the idea. Uh, Abner never explicitly admits to the, the problem. Uh, however, it's likely that he, he probably did do what was claimed. As, I, as I've studied the text and, and based upon the context, I, I kind of lean toward the idea that he probably did do what Ishbosheth is, is claiming, but I, certainly not fighting ground. Either way, the charge has been made. Ishbosheth confronts Abner and accuses him of taking this concubine and so to a degree to usurp the throne. This would have been a level of treachery, a level of treason. And notice verse 8, how Abner responds to this. Then was Abner very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head, which against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul thy father, to his brethren, and to his friends, and have not delivered thee into the hand of David, that thou chargest me today with a fault concerning this woman? Abner gets very angry. He asks Ishbosheth if he's a dog's head who shows kindness to the house of Saul. Effectively, he's telling Ishbosheth that in going into unto Saul's concubine, that, that this, this, this is the least of Ishbosheth's problems. Are you really going to accuse me of this and say that this, that I'm threatening your throne? Me who, who set you up as king? Me, who is the only thing standing between you and David, and, and I'm, I'm treasonous? And you're coming after me when, when you've got bigger problems here, man. Abner had gone out of his way to protect the house of Saul, and that's what he's trying to highlight here. Whether this is Abner actually denying the act or whether it's just him trying to take the spotlight off of it, uh, it's, it's not really said one way or another. But Abner was the one to put Ishbosheth on the throne. And he says, Now you would dare to challenge me on my relationship to Saul's concubine and my loyalty to the house of Saul? He goes on in verses 9 and 10. So do God to Abner, and more also, he says, except as the Lord hath sworn to David, even so I do to him, to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba.
this moment of Ishbosheth's accusation becomes one of revelation to Abner. He realizes now that the accounts of God's promises to David were indeed true. That he's been resisting God's will by resisting the house of Saul. He's effectively saying, look, if this is the way you're going to treat me, it, it, it appears that from everything that's gone on, that, that yes, indeed, God has desired to translate the house of Saul and set up the house of David. He says this is a threat to Ishbosheth. That if this is the way Ishbosheth wants to treat him, he might as well just hand the kingdom over to David. Since the whole kingdom knows full well that it's David's by divine right anyway. So Ishbosheth effectively pushed Abner to a breaking point here. Abner was probably pretty stressed out already. Uh, things were not going well. David was getting stronger. Saul's house was getting weaker. Ishbosheth comes up with this, and Abner says, I've had enough of you. We're going to change this. He put upon Abner the final straw that broke his loyalty to the fading house of Saul. And so we read in verses 11 and 12. He could not answer, this is Ishbosheth, and he could not answer Abner a word again because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf. On his behalf. Notice that. Whose is the land? Saying also, make thy league with me, and behold, my hand shall be with thee to bring about all Israel unto thee. Ishbosheth keeps his mouth shut. He's terrified of Abner. Obviously, Ishbosheth is not a strong king. Abner's a very strong man. Ishbosheth could do nothing against Abner. He just keeps his mouth shut. Abner then goes out and he sends messengers to speak to David. He, he does not come in humility or service here, though. Uh, he, he's here to do business. He asks, whose is the land? Whose is the land? Basically, David, God may have promised you the land, but I've got the army and the loyalty of the land. If you deal with me, I will work with you to bring the land under your control to turn the people toward you, but I want a deal, Abner says. Now, th this isn't in inherently treason. I did note, and do take note, that Abner says, or that Abner sends these messengers to David on his behalf. Ishbosheth has not refused here. There's, there's simply a recognition of of what's going on, a recognition that the throne of David is his, it's simply time to stop the rebellion, is what Abner says here. Abner, sick of this kid, Ishbosheth, and his, his weakness and his unwillingness to do what needs to be done. So Abner is ready to translate the kingdom over. However, he doesn't want to die. He, he wants to strike a deal here. And we see very likely that the intent was not necessarily to go over Ishbosheth's head. Ishbosheth was such a weak king that he would not resist this. This was not Abner being treasonous against Ishbosheth or anything of the sort. This was simply Abner saying, Ishbosheth, this is what we're going to do. You're done. The kingdom's going to go to David. And Ishbosheth is going to go along with this. And we'll see this in verses 13 and 14. Notice what the text says. And he said, this is David, said, Well, I will make a league with thee, but one thing I require of thee, that is, thou shalt not see my face, except thou first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when thou comest to see my face. And David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Deliver me my wife Michael, which I espoused to me for an hundred foreskins of the Philistines. So David is inclined to take the deal, but only on his terms. 
And there's one particular condition which he demands, and that is Michael, his first wife. He wants her back. This may have been, in part, a sentimental move, but, but it must have also been deeply political. When Saul gave Michael to another man, after having betrothed her and given her to David, Saul was effectively disavowing David as a son-in-law. And David had rightfully purchased the right to marry Michael through the foreskins of the Philistines. He had paid Saul's, the, the, the dowry for Saul's daughter. He had purchased the right to marry her. And this is why David sent to Ishbosheth, not to Abner, to retrieve his wife. You notice that? Did you notice he didn't send to Abner? He sent to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, and said, Give me Michael if you want this deal to be done. This is how we know that Ishbosheth is a part of this. Ishbosheth isn't just sitting in the corner here wondering what Abner's doing. He's a part of this transaction. Why would David send to Ishbosheth instead of to Abner? Because David wants the son of Saul to make this transaction that will effectively bring David back into Saul's family. It's a political move so that David is not just overthrowing the house of Saul. He is moving through the house of Saul onto the throne. And in doing so, of course, Israel will be more, will, will be more comfortable with it. The Benjamites in particular will be more comfortable with this transition. And it's, it's right and it's good because Michael is David's wife by law. So David is seeking a way to end this amicably. He wants everyone to be okay here. He doesn't want bloodshed. He doesn't want war. He doesn't want civil war. He doesn't want that. He wants things to be okay here. Abner and Ishbosheth will be forgiven, working their way into a peaceable merging with David's kingdom. All wrongs would be righted. David's authority would be asserted. David would show mercy for which he was well known throughout his reign. The house of Saul would again be merged with the house of David through Michael. Things would be good. And Ishbosheth complies. Notice verse 15 and 16. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, even from Faltiel, the son of Laish, and her husband went with her, went with her along, weeping behind her to Bahurim. Then said Abner unto him, Go, return. And he returned. So Ishbosheth agrees to the deal. He, he's in agreement with this plan. He's in agreement with this treaty and this merger. Michael's taken from Faltiel. Faltiel follows her weeping. He had been married to this woman for the better part of a decade at this point. And it appears that his love for her was strong and genuine. We, we might rightly feel some sympathy for both Michael and Faltiel here. Michael was leaving her husband, who cherished her, to become a part of David's multi-wife system, where she'll just kind of be one of the wives. And as we'll learn in a few weeks, she'll even end up being barren because of a statement that she makes that displeases the Lord. And so she, she's uh, not going to be nearly as well off anymore with David necessarily. And the transaction being primarily for political purposes, it, it might be right. It's right that David takes his wife, 
But it, it would not be a fault of yours to feel some sympathy for both Michael and Faltiel in this, in this instance. Well, continuing in verses 17 to 21, we read this. And Abner had communication with the elders of Israel, saying, Ye sought for David in times past to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord hath spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spake in the ears of Benjamin. And Abner went also to speak in the ears of David in Hebron. All that seemed good to Israel and that seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner came to David to Hebron and 20 men with him. And David made Abner and the men that were with him a feast. And Abner said unto David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel unto my lord the king, that they may make a league with thee, and that thou mayest reign over all that thine heart desireth. And David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So Abner goes throughout all of Israel. He speaks to the elders of Israel. He gets their approval. He says, in time past you wanted David king. God has promised to deliver you from the hand of the Philistines through David the king. Now it's time to make him the king. And, and he, he spoke with them, and, and it's all good. So now he goes to David, and he says everything is good. And David makes him and the 20 men that were with him a feast. And they have a, a wonderful feast, and they have a good time. And Abner, notice what he, how he calls him. He says, he calls David, my lord, the king. Abner has transitioned his loyalty. The transition has taken place. It's all set. And Abner says, I'm going to get up now, and I'm going to go throughout Israel, and I'm going to bring the tribes together and we are all going to submit ourselves under you. And he went in peace because this is a peaceful thing. This is right. This transaction that's, that's taking place here is good. This is what David wanted. No bloodshed, peaceful resolution. He, he loved Saul. He loved Jonathan. He's not interested in, in seeing Ishbosheth destroyed. He's not interested in any, any more Israelites being killed. That's what Abner said to Joab last week, right? When is this going to end, this bitterness that, that's going on here? Let's take care of this amicably. That's what's happening here. So everything looks good. Abner and Ishbosheth, they're ready to align themselves with David. Abner leaves in peace. If only it ended there. I wish the chapter ended there, but it doesn't. Look at verse 22 to 25. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from pursuing a troop and brought in a great spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he was gone in peace. When Joab and all the host that was with him were come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he hath sent him away, and he is gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What hast thou done? Behold, Abner came unto thee. Why is it that thou hast sent him away, and he is quite gone? Thou knowest Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive thee, and to know thy going out and thy coming in, and to know all that thou doest. Joab does not trust that Abner is speaking the truth here. And we know full well why he, why he feels this way, right? Why would Joab possibly feel these sorts of feelings toward Abner? Well, could it be because at the beginning of the long war between Saul and David, house of Saul and the house of David, Abner killed Joab's youngest brother, Azahel? There's a personal anger, a personal vindictiveness going on here. We could talk about that, but we've talked about that several times over the last 
few weeks, so we won't really touch on that today. There's a resentment boiling in Joab. And resentment that boils up in a person never, never comes out the way we want it to. Joab believes that Abner is doing something deceitful, trying to figure out David's plan, trying to overthrow David in some way. Joab's mind is on war. And that makes sense because there's a war going on. So Joab takes things into his own hands. Verses 26 and 27. When Joab was come out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of Sirah. But David knew it not. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly and smote him there under the fifth rib that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. Well, David obviously didn't regard Joab's words with much concern. He didn't think Abner was being treacherous. He trusted what was going on here. They sent Michael in good faith, right? And Joab, in fact, reveals himself to be the treacherous one. He calls for Abner. Abner had gone. He calls for him. Abner comes all the way back to Hebron. And when he gets to Hebron, Joab meets him there and says, Hey, I need to talk to you. And he brings him beside the gate as if to say something privately. And he then kills him in cold blood out of revenge for his brother Azahel. The idea of being smitten under the fifth rib, we saw it last week, we see it this week, we'll see it again next week. The idea of smiting a man under the fifth rib would be to smite him in the gut. Um, typically, that would have been the place to stab a man because it's not going to be, you're, you're not going to hit a rib, which gets in the way of you killing the person, right? So you, 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 you hit him in the vital organs that are below the protective area so that he'll die. And that's what they did, and they killed him. Joab killed him. Joab murders Abner in treachery and in cold blood. Well, the remainder of this chapter is David's response. Look at verses 28 and 29. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there not fall from the house of Joab one that hath an issue, or that is a leper, or that leaneth on a staff, or that falleth on the sword, or that lacketh bread. David disavows here Joab and any guilt over this instance. Any guilt. This was not his intent. He did not want uh, Abner murdered. Uh, he did not desire it. He did not intend it. He did not command it. And he needs to make this clear on several fronts. The first and the least important front is that Israel would see this, would they not? Israel would see this treachery and they would not be pleased. But more so than that, Joab had shed innocent blood. And David, knowing the economy of the Lord, understood what it meant that Joab had shed innocent blood. And how important, how vile the shedding of innocent blood is to the Lord. And David did not want that association with his kingdom. 
So he says that the blood of Abner needs to rest on the head of Joab. And he curses Joab. And, and he, he wishes that there would never fail to be anyone in Joab's family who was not, and look at the list here, hath an issue, or that is a leper, or that leans on the staff so they're weak, or that falleth by the sword, they get killed in battle, or they lack bread, they're poor. David uh, deeply curses Joab here, in fact. He's seeking to, uh, by stating this, he's seeking to avert penalty on his house or upon the people who often suffer for the sins of their rulers. And David understands that innocent blood does not just touch the person who has shed it. It can expand to the land, to the people that allow the shedding of innocent blood. Continuing in verse 30. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, slew Abner because he had slain their brother, Azahel, at Gibeon in the battle. And David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, Rend your clothes and gird you with sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David himself followed the bear, which would be like the... like. Uh, um, a thing that they carried a dead body on. And they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool dieth? Thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fellest thou. And all the people wept again over him. And when all the people came to cause David to eat meat while it was yet day, David swore, saying, So do God to me, and more also if I taste bread, or aught else, till the sun be down. So David commands his men, including Joab, the murderer, to weep and to mourn for Abner, to honor his memory. David wept at Abner's grave. David lamented the dishonorable way that he was killed. He said, you fell like a man before wicked men fall. The deceitful way that this man of war ended, whereas he should have died honorably. He should have died honorably fighting for king and country or honorably surrounded by his family peaceably. He instead dies by treachery before a man of wickedness. And David refused to eat until the sun went down. This act of solidarity with Abner and his memory reflected genuinely to the people that David did not want Abner to die. Joab, Joab's actions might have collapsed the treaty between David and Israel, but instead the people respected David's response to this, and it probably even solidified his political position. And we read in the final four verses of, of our chapter this evening. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as whatsoever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it was not of the king to slay Abner the son of Ner. And the king said unto his servants, Know ye not that there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel? And I am this day weak, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, be too hard for me. The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. David admits that he's in an interesting place here. He is king. Abner would have been an incredibly valuable asset to his kingdom. 
Joab and his brother were, were, however, very hard to control, probably made worse by the fact that, that they were brothers and that he was family. David was family, right? David was their uncle. Interestingly, however, David does not take Joab's justice upon himself. He curses Joab. He commends Joab's wickedness unto God. But he does not destroy Joab himself. And why this is, we don't really know. Why didn't David just kill Joab here? Joab slew an innocent man, shed innocent blood. Why didn't David kill Joab here now? We don't know. But it's interesting to note, however, that when Solomon was appointed king in David's place, one of the first things that David commanded Solomon to do was to execute Joab for killing Abner. Why did David not feel comfortable doing it? I don't know. And because David delayed, we'll talk about this, it caused bigger problems. Why did David, was he not comfortable doing it? Was it because he was too close maybe with his nephew? Was it because he felt politically that he needed him? So he just cursed him instead for now? Don't know. But one of the first acts that David requests of Solomon is that he execute Joab, 1 Kings chapter 2, for shedding innocent blood. For our application today, I'd like us to consider the vileness of Job's actions here from the greater perspective that God hates the shedding of innocent blood. It is vile. It is offensive in his eyes. What is innocent blood? The life of one who dies unjustly at the hand of another. The life of one who dies not for proper reasons, not for just reasons, but unjustly. There are several instances in the Bible where a man's death is considered just, if not tragic. Death in war or in duty. This is a just death. Men die in war. It is tragic, but men die in war. The warrior is not a murderer. And the peace officer, when he, is, when he kills a man in fulfillment of his duty, is not a murderer. Romans 13 makes this quite clear. In verses 1 through 4, we read this. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. When the government takes it upon themselves in a just manner to avenge evil, whether that's through the, the police force or whether that's through the justice system or whether that's in the, the case of, of a just war, He's, the, he's considered the minister of God. Now, we know that war is never God's desire. This is a part of the sin nature. But God has ordained government to deal with evil. 
and the government has the authority to deal with evil. Now, we don't speak to wicked practices of war. We don't speak to the destruction of civilians, to wars of expedience. But in a just war, soldier upon soldier, we recognize that they do not bear the sword in vain. Likewise, the officer of the peace, not when the officer of the peace is unjustly taking advantage of his position, but when he is justly serving, working out his duty to execute wrath and vengeance upon evil. He is a minister of God, not a murderer. In the eyes of God, these killings are just. We see the same of personal protection in the scriptures, that the man who defends the life of another is not a murderer. It is just. We see in Numbers 35, we won't have time to go there this evening, that the man who involuntarily kills another man through accident, according to the law of Moses, was not condemned to die for his wrong. He would suffer the consequences of taking a human life in that until the death of the high priest, he had to live in a city of refuge. If he left the city of refuge, then the family of the one who he killed could kill him justly. And yet he would not die for his crime if it was involuntary, if it was an accident, if two men are working in the field and one man accidentally kills the other man. He would not die for that offense. I'd love to spend more time on this, but we don't really have the time. It's sufficient to say the biblical command not to kill is speaking specifically of not murdering. The unjust taking of another life, another human life, when judged by God's divine standard. And that's very important. When judged by God's divine standard, when a human takes another life, sheds innocent blood unjustly according to God's standard, murder. But innocent blood, the blood of those who have no reason, no just reason to die, the blood of those who could not or would not defend themselves, the blood of those who have done nothing worthy of death according to God's just standard, the blood of those slain in anger, the blood of those slain through deceit, God hates the shedding of innocent blood. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 9 to 13. Notice what God says. If thou shalt keep all these commandments to do them, which I command thee this day, to love the Lord thy God and to walk ever in his ways, then thou shalt add three cities more for thee, beside these three, that innocent blood be not shed in thy land. He's speaking of the, the cities of refuge, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and so blood be upon thee. But if any man hate his neighbor and lie in wait for him, and rise up against him, and smite him mortally that he die, and fleeth into one of these cities, those cities of refuge, then the elders of his city shall send and fetch him thence, and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. Thine eye shall not pity him, but thou shalt put away, look at this, the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with thee. God reckoned that if a man killed another man, it murdered him in anger that he, he premeditatively or in anger murdered his brother, it was the duty of the nation to punish him lest they be guilty of his innocent blood. We read in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, These six things doth the Lord hate, 
Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and the third on this list, hands that shed innocent blood. All throughout the prophets, we find God's condemnation upon the land of Israel for the blood of the innocents that was shed. You can read it in Isaiah. You can read it in Jeremiah. You can read it in Ezekiel. You can read it in the minor prophets. As God looked back upon the nation, one of the foremost reasons why he was allowing the nation of Israel to go into captivity was because of the injustice in the land, because of the amount of innocent blood shed in the land. And this should be a startling thing for we who are in the United States, for we who are a part of Western culture. Because we must understand today that we are a nation full of innocent blood. Every murderer that is spared from the death penalty, according to God's word, is blood on the hands of this nation. Every child who is murdered through abortion, according to God's word, is blood on the hands of this nation. Every elderly man or woman who is murdered through euthanasia is blood on the hands of this nation. And God does not hold them guiltless that shed innocent blood. The problem is that we, we don't have justice anymore in the land. Justice is an outworking of morality. Morality is an outworking of the standard bearer. And the standard bearer is God. If God has been rejected, thus his moral standard is rejected, then there is no more standard by which to gauge justice. And when justice has no standard, every man does that which is right in his own eyes. And when there is no justice, Innocence will be the victim. Innocence is the casualty. Those who cannot defend themselves, those who will not defend themselves, they become the casualty of a system that lacks justice. As we close, one more thought. With Abner and Azahel, we recognize Abner to be fully justified under the rules of war to take the life of Azahel. They were in a battle. Abner even warns Azahel. He didn't have to do that, but he warns him, I'm going to kill you if you don't stop chasing me. And he does it. That would have been a just slaying. Joab, on the other hand, murdered Abner in cold blood. Without the right of vengeance, without the right of law, without the approval of his authority. David did not take Joab's life. And we don't really know why. But make no mistake, Joab was worthy of death. The day was coming when he would pay, but because he did not pay early. You know what we'll find? And we, we talked about it in the book sermon. Joab's going to do this again. This will not be the only time that he slays a man he should not. As a matter of fact, this is number one of three where Joab will go outside of David's will to kill a man that David did not want killed. Those other two men would not have been killed 
had judgment been executed speedily. And that principle we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11 as we close. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. I hope that this gives us a little insight into why our society is where it is today. Why our streets run red with the blood of innocence today. Why we're seeing the rampant amount of death, murder, shootings, if you want to call them massacres. Why all of the innocent blood? It's not because of guns. Second Amendment isn't the problem. It's not because of mental health issues. It's because justice is not executed speedily. And because there is no justice left. And until men find the, the biblical moorings, until biblical morality begins to influence the culture once again, you can expect that, it's, that, that there will be no justice. Because without God, there is no standard for justice. Men do that which is right in their own eyes. So it is that the men in this country, are, their hearts are fully set to do evil. Because judgment is not executed speedily. Because justice has been abrogated. But you know, it should not be so among us. Now, I'm not too worried about this group going out and murdering people in the physical sense. Right? This, this is not a direct application message. I mean, you shouldn't, right? No. Can, can we just lay that out? You shouldn't murder anyone. Now, Jesus said if you hate a man in your heart, it's as good as murder. That's, that's as important and, and, and for another day. But in a society stained with the blood of innocence, we are to be a people who cry out for God's mercy. And in a society lacking any concept of justice, we are to be a people who stand upon the principles of that which is just. We ought to be a people that support that which is just, that which is right. We ought not throw our weight, throw our support, throw our, our love of any kind, throw our desire of any kind upon one who does not regard justice. Upon one who does not have a proper regard for the danger and the wickedness of slaying innocent blood. And may God help us to be a voice in the darkness of this culture. We cannot trust in any sort of top-down government change to influence culture. It doesn't work that way. But throughout the ages, if I may put it this way, it has always been understood in many ways that the church is the conscience of society. That the church has acted as that part of society that shines the light into society's darkness and makes it evident where evil abounds. May God help us to be a part of that conscience to this nation as we speak with individuals, as we work out the freedoms that we've been given in this country. May God help us to call this nation unto righteousness in the midst of its depravity by living lives of justice 
and as God has blessed us with the freedom in this country to do so, to speak up. Because it is so clearly taught in Scripture how deeply God hates the shedding of innocent blood and that he does not hold them guiltless who do such things. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that this sermon would have been um, helpful, at least in our setting of our mindset in regard to where our society is today. I, I pray that you would guide our hearts into an understanding of your mind on the concept of shedding innocent blood as, as Abner's blood was shed by Joab treacherously, wickedly. And David was deeply concerned that Joab's treachery would reflect upon his kingdom in your eyes. May we, may we be careful that we do not reflect any sort of evil upon our church through any, any element of support for those that would dare shed innocent blood. May we understand justice. May we understand what it is to, to, to know where the line is drawn between those that shed blood under your authority for just reasons and those who have offended your justice. And may we seek to hold our ground And Father, we pray for mercy. Mercy upon this land. This land which has lost its concept of justice. And everything that that flows from it. Please bring justice back to this land. And we know it can only be done through Christ. So we pray for revival for souls to be saved. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.